not, that's okay too, because I'll be going through the chapter. But we are here, finally, at the conclusion of this very unique and special book that transitions from uh, what is called the, the Pentateuch, or the first five books of the Bible, to the early history of the Israelite people. And uh, it's been very interesting. We've learned, I think, a lot of lessons. And, and really, that's what the, past two ch- or the last two chapters of Joshua are. Joshua, the end of his life, is going to sum up the lessons that, that he's learned, that the Israelites learned, and as we've gone through the book of Joshua, that we've learned. So it's a little bit of review today. So I know on the one hand, we won't be saying maybe a whole lot new that we haven't covered before but in way of, or by way of review, we'll also have a chance to remind ourselves of the themes of Joshua and hopefully find some ways to apply this again and uh, freshly in our lives. So let's begin here in Joshua chapter 23, and I'll read the first few verses here to get us started. Joshua 23, verse 1, a long time afterward, when Yahweh had given rest to Israel from all their surrounding enemies, And Joshua was old and well advanced in years. Joshua summoned all Israel, its elders and heads, its judges and officers, and said to them, I am now old and well advanced in years. Well, you can't have a final review with the people without gathering the people together. So we have uh, here as an introduction, the aging Joshua assembling the people together. Now, you see there the word rest in verse 1, that Yahweh, and when you see the capital L-O-R-D in your Bibles, that's a reference not to a title like Lord, but actually to God's divine name, his special name that he was known to the people of Israel by. Uh, We call it Yahweh um, because that's probably how it sounded, but uh, just know that a lot of English translations, they tend to um, put capital L-O-R-D, which is sort of a, a Jewish tradition, so as not to speak the name of God. Anyway. When you see Lord, you're in all caps, we're talking about a name and not a title. That's all to say there. We have this concept of rest, that Yahweh had given rest to Israel from all their surrounding enemies. And I think we mentioned this a little bit before, but this is one of the first uh, lessons here, is that rest is a critical concept, biblically speaking. It begins even in the opening chapters of the book of Genesis, where after you remember, God spent six days in creating the heavens and the earth. He spent the seventh day resting. Why would he do that? Because after all, he's God. Does he need to take a nap? Did he get tired? No, of course not. This was to build in. This was to establish rest as an important facet of of humankind's existence, not God's existence per se, but our existence. Rest is built into work um, as the Sabbath rest. It's going to end up being called in the, in the Hebrew uh, verbiage. And that day of rest, that seventh day of the work week, was intended to be a time to trust in the Lord. That's the essence of rest. It's a, it's a devoted time to simply enjoy and uh, be provided for by God himself. So work and rest, they're not opposites necessarily, because I think we probably tend to see them as opposites, um, but really they're complementary. They, they go together. So rest ends up being used many different ways in the Bible. In Joshua and in here, it does have mainly the idea of a state of peace, meaning uh, the kind of cessation of hostilities after wartime. Uh, but it can also refer to the calm after a time of struggle and worry. It's often used that way in the book of Psalms, for example. Rest can also refer to um, the, the, the like letting go of all the baggage after a long day of journeying and traveling. Of course, uh, you can relate to that if you've done any holiday travels, but uh, it's stressful to travel. But when, you get, when you're finally going and you can finally heave that sigh of relief and drop all your baggage and you have that rest, there's also that sense of rest there. Um, but again, ultimately, there's a communication of trust in all godly rest. I've done all I can and should do, and Lord, you will provide for me everything else. Whether that means peace after engaging in war, whether that is um, a calm after a series of trials, whether that's just getting home and trusting God um, that, that everything's going to be fine now that I'm home. The Israelites, 
they didn't truly enter into that time of rest. They were given rest, but it was a temporary rest when we see it here in Joshua 23. It's going to become more abundantly clear when we get to Joshua 24 and as we kind of use that to hint at the future history of Israel. But they didn't truly enter into like an eternal rest at this time or else there wouldn't be anything after Joshua 23. We talked about that, I think, either last week or a, a couple weeks ago that we... If everything had gone according perfectly to plan, we wouldn't have the rest of the Bible. But we know something went wrong somewhere because we have much more of the Bible after Joshua, I think it's 22. Um, So they didn't enter into that rest because sin always had this way of creeping into the life of the Jewish people. Um, Again, we're going to see that almost right away in Joshua 24, that even as he's giving them these final words and warnings and reviews, They've already been, they already are committing sin in their hearts, even as they're listening to the words of Joshua. So true rest is not to be found even in these early pages of history of the Israelites. In fact, the prophets are going to speak for hundreds and hundreds, a thousand years after this, prophesying that true peace is yet future for you, Israel, Because there's not going to be true peace until there's a true peacemaker. In Matthew chapter 11, 28, the son of God, whom we celebrate at Christmas time, he says this to the people of Israel. Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, Jesus says, come to me, all who are, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So we hear a thousand, almost 400 years after the time of Joshua, the Son of God and the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, will come and offer rest, not not in that you'll never have to work another day of your life necessarily, but that he, Jesus Christ himself, would offer to work with you and together with you. And so it's not until that day that uh, Israel will know its true rest. And we get into kind of the future history of Israel, um, probably after we finish Joshua 24, just to use that as an opportunity. But we'll talk about the future history of Israel, yet to come, even for us. But going back to Joshua, Joshua, when he says to them, I'm old and well advanced in years, what does that mean exactly? Well, we know according to Joshua 24, 29, Joshua died at the ripe old age of 110. The end of the conquest was about 25 years prior. So when it talks about a long time afterward, we surmise it's about 25 years, and that's if you assume Caleb and Joshua were about the same age. And we know Caleb's age from Joshua 14, 10, He was about 85 at that point. So about 25 years have passed uh, from the end of 22 to the beginning of chapter 23, and uh, he's about to die. Now, other cultures do record their rulers and kings living much longer age ranges and spans that we're accustomed to. We read 110, we think it's a very ripe old age. Um, Not many make it to there, but you, you do... Not to get too much into the weeds, you do see a slow um, digression of the ages of the patriarchs, of how long they would live. You know, you had Methuselah at 900-something years, and it seems to diminish uh, over the years. And you do have records of other uh, cultures and, and societies around the world of talking about their rulers having lived between 100 and 200 years. So it's not that weird or that odd if we were to take some of those historical records into account. I believe the Bible is true. There's no reason not to think that he was not 110 when he died. But that is, uh, according to Joshua himself, well advanced in years. So it's not like uh, he didn't think also that he was getting old. But with that age did come much wisdom. I mean, Joshua is saying there is... There are things I have seen. Remember, Joshua was alive at the time of Pharaoh. At the time, they were slaves making bricks for the Pharaoh of Egypt. He was there with the 10 plagues. He was there at Mount Sinai. He was there at all the rebellions and all the times that Israel screwed up. He was there for 40 years wandering in the wilderness. He was there for all the conquests. He had seen many, many things. And so 
that should be kind of a goad for us. We need to pay attention because whatever Joshua is going to distill for us from his years, not just that he lived a long time, but the things that he had seen God do, the mistakes he had seen Israel made, we ought to listen. We ought to pay attention because this is a voice of wisdom. And so he brings that up so that the Israelites will be, oh yeah, yeah, he's been around for a long time. I mean, he has seen so much. He has seen mistakes and failures. He's seen successes. Um, he, he's been the one sometimes to screw up. We better listen. And we too also better listen to him as well. So that sets up kind of the introduction to some of these review lessons. And the first review lesson we have is that Yahweh has done it all. God has done it all. Verse 3, and you have seen all that, your, that Yahweh your God has done to all these nations for your sake, for it is Yahweh your God who has fought for you. The Israelites at this time could have been tempted to look at the conquest that they had made and start to think, wow, we are pretty awesome. Look at all that we've accomplished. Look at what we have done. And yet Joshua, for all of the successes that he has been a part of as not only the the leader of the Israelites, but the, the general, you could say, of the troops, what does he give? Who does he give the glory to? He gives it to God. If if, if he, the general in charge, is willing to give the glory to God and the credit to God, then who were the rest of the Israelites to try and uh, take any ownership of that for themselves? And you have to understand this is very unusual. The book of Joshua is highly unusual when you compare it to other of the nations at the time. Other nations at this time, of course, they recorded their military victories. And you find reliefs etched in walls. You find great monuments and pillars that depict battles and how they destroyed this enemy and that enemy and they were made to bring tribute and there's, there's slaves that are brought in and heads on spikes and all kinds of depictions of their glorious victory. But what makes Joshua unique and really the whole testimony of the Old Testament and the history of the Jewish people is that they always recorded their failures as well. Whereas these other pagan nations, they might make passing reference to a deity. It was almost always that this deity had chosen King so-and-so to be the, the, the leader of the world's greatest nation. And, and, and that person brought the victory. Well, who's commissioning <laughs> these monuments? Well, it's the King. It's the ruler. These are all vanity projects, but the Bible is almost the opposite. Not only did Joshua record the losses, the failures, this is, which is almost unheard of, he gives clear credit for their success to God and God alone. God's power, God's ability, God's faithfulness. And for a book named Joshua, which I don't think Joshua named the book Joshua. That's it's probably a name that you know, people afterwards gave it. The Hebrews don't. I don't think call it the, um, the book of Joshua. Maybe they do, I don't remember. But I doubt that he named it that. And, and assuming again, and this is, uh, I think there's no reason not to think this, that though he was the one to write this book, it doesn't come off really as being all about him. In fact, you almost get the feeling that this book exists for Joshua to say, I did all I could, Lord. And if something wasn't the right way, I, you know, don't hold me guilty of what other people did or didn't do. It's almost like, God, I, 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 did, I did all I can. And what else can I say but I try to be faithful to you? And the reason I say that is look how this ends. This is a very famous passage, but Joshua 24, 14 through 15, he says, and we'll get to it more next time. Now, therefore, fear Yahweh, serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve Yahweh. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve Yahweh, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve Yahweh. So uh, Joshua 24, 14 through 15. And the famous one is, as for me and my house, we will serve Yahweh. 
And that's, that's a very like a, a noble sounding thing. I've seen it, you know, printed up and put in homes. And it is a noble thing to say. As for me and my house, we'll serve Yahweh. But there's a, there's a hint of, um, of sadness there because what is he kind of assuming? That they're tempted to not serve. And he is saying, you know, I, I can't do this for you. We'll get to it in a second. But Joshua is essentially saying, I can only control me and my house. We're going to try to serve Yahweh. I don't know about you guys. In a way, the whole book of Joshua is like, you know, God, like I tried all I could do to lead these people in the right way. But ultimately, whether they serve you or not, my conscience is clear. So it's not so much a book then hailing Joshua's victories, as you might expect from a record like this. But it's Joshua trying to keep a clear conscience. And we'll get to that in a second. Now, as far as application is concerned, um, What matters the most to Joshua then is his relationship to God. Victories and failures, that only matters because they reflect the people's relationship to the Lord. And that's the most important thing. It's not that they make a conquest. It's not that they occupy the land per se. It's are we living lives that honor God? You can't always judge it just by the achievements or even our failures in life. The ultimate measure of our success is how we relate to God by faith and whether we are keeping a clear conscience with him. You know, Joshua is going to be more and more clear that everything he did was so that he could stand before God, not as a perfect man, but as a man who had a clear conscience before his God and did what he could. And so, of course, he has to give all the glory to God. Of course, he's going to talk about his, the failures as well as the successes in this book because he wants God to get the glory. And anytime the people diminish that glory, he needed to make sure that was said so that people would understand the point of the story is God and the point of your life is God as well. Maybe as by means of application, you might consider some ways that you can give God the glory in your triumphs, but also keep a clear conscience with him in your failures as well. Review lesson number two. Even though Yahweh does it all, obedience still matters. Verse four, behold, I have allotted to you as an inheritance for your tribes, those nations that remain, along with all the nations that I have already cut off from the Jordan to the great sea in the West. Yahweh, your God will push them back before you and drive them out of your sight. And you shall possess their land just as Yahweh, your God promised you. Now we just said that Yahweh does it, right? He's the one that drives away the enemies. He's the ones that they, the, the reason that they've had success in the land. But it does not mean that our obedience means nothing. As much as we might say that it all depends on the Lord, that statement of faith and trust, it all depends on the Lord, it will result in obedience and conviction. We must believe that God's plans cannot be frustrated, that he cannot be overcome even by my bad choices in life. And and yet to actually show we believe him, it doesn't mean that I keep doing things to try and frustrate his plan or or give him bad choices to overcome. Rather, if I really believe that God is in control, this is his plan, then I ought to walk in faithful obedience. I mean, saying you trust or believe something, just saying it means very little. It's like, um, um, well, Pastor Chris gave an excellent study on, on uh, Jesus when he healed the paralytic. And they had this discussion about, you know, son, your mans are forgiven you. Well, it's easy to say that. Anyone can say, hey, you're forgiven. How do you know that someone is forgiven. Well, that's why Jesus has to make the connection so that you might know the son of man has the ability to forgive sins. I tell you, pick up your mat and walk. And so the evidence of that forgiveness that you cannot see is that this man was actually healed, you know, verifiably healed. So in a somewhat similar way, if I tell you, I believe that God truly is the Lord of the world, Lord of my life. Well, how am I going to show that to you? Is it in defying him and disobeying him? 
No, it's going to be in doing the things that he has called me to do, living the life that he created me to live in, in holiness and in good works. So if God is love and I believe that, then I need to love other people. If we believe that we ought to live holy and self-controlled lives because we have a spirit of power and love and self-control, as 2 Timothy 1 talks about, then we do those godly works that reflect that belief. Not that we're perfect. Not that we're looking for the praises of man. Not that we want to point to our works in order to say, I am so much better than that other guy over there. But just as we see throughout the whole book, right? What was the refrain we saw so often, right? He did all that Moses had commanded, which was another way of saying he did all that God had commanded Moses to command, or they did all that Moses had commanded. We saw that refrain over and over and over again. Doing what God commands is the most basic expectation of life. We are made by God to do God's will. The most basic thing we could do as we putter around this planet, is what God wants us to do. It's not extra credit to obey. It's the very basic fundamental nature of our being to obey. That we don't do it has to do with the depths of our sin then. Now with that in mind, I know it says like Joshua, it seems like he's taking credit for some things. Like I've allotted you this land as inheritance. I am the one that cut off uh, along with all the nations I've already cut off. And it sounds like he's bringing attention to himself. Again, just understand, he isn't trying to take credit away from God. This is a statement that, that Joshua's own faith resulted in obedience. <laughs> God told him to do these things. It's not that Joshua did these things because, oh, this would be a great idea from a PR perspective. You know, people really uh, appreciate me. They're going to vote for me in the next election or something. No, when he says, I did these things, it's not to laud himself. It's to say, God told me, or Moses told God to tell me to do this. I did it. I did these things for you. My faith was exemplified in obedience. So when God said, allot the land, I did it. That's all it is. It's not a praise thing. It's not anything. No credit is, you know, going to him just for doing what God told him to do. And so he's telling the Israelites the same way. Do these things. Drive them out. God will be with you. I just told you God is the one who does it. So if you, if you take that little step of obedience, it'll all be laid out for you. But he can't force the Israelites to obey, especially not after he dies right? All he can do is faithfully remind the Israelites that the land is theirs by the provision and promise of God. God said, this is yours. God promised to be with you. All that is required is some faith. And what will faith look like? Obedience. Again, by way of application, I was thinking, I think we can be tempted to think that trusting the Lord is the same as being passive. In other words, um, you have commands like wait upon the Lord. Um, Psalm 27, 14 um, is, a, is a good example of that. Psalm 27, 14, wait for Yahweh. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for Yahweh. Waiting is not passive. Trusting is not passive because the 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 very act of trusting and believing the Lord goes against our own nature to take care of it ourselves, to have our will and our way be done. Waiting takes a lot of faith and courage in this kind of context. That's why he said, like, it's the most bizarre thing. Wait for Yahweh, be strong. Well, how much strength does it take to sit in a waiting room of a doctor's office for your appointment? Well, it can take a lot of strength to wait. Because what are you tempted to do? Tempted to get upset? You know, you're tempted to, as soon as you see the doctor, you're going to give him peace of your mind. You're tempted to look at the nurses and, and think bad thoughts about them. You're tempted to walk out. You're tempted to be in despair. I mean, I'm never going to get this taken care of. There's a lot of temptations in waiting, right? And so it does take a lot of strength to wait. Trusting the Lord is never passive, even when you're having to wait for God's timing. Having said that, more often than not, there's, there's something to do. There is something to do. 
in terms of our obedience to the Lord. There are those seasons where you have to wait upon him, where you're going through a season where you've reached the end of all the things you can do, and the worst thing to do would be to take things in your own hands, so you do got to wait. But so often, faith looks like taking another step towards the Lord, towards what he wants. Doing a lot of times a contrary act, or in, in our house, uh, the, the phrase is the hardest thing to do, usually the right thing to do. And so it's taking that hard step, or as Jesus puts it, you know, broad is the path that leads to destruction, but narrow that leads to life. And so looking for the narrow way um, is an act of faith and obedience. But I, I just wanted to mention that because sometimes um, waiting is the act of obedience. Sometimes there is a, it seems passive to wait um, to trust the Lord. But uh, many times, as in, as in the case here with Joshua, the Israelites needed to act. They needed to continue um, driving out these pagan and wicked nations from before them. And we already know they're not going to do it. Thirdly, third review lesson, lesson, trust the words of God. Trust the words of God. Verse 8, Joshua 23. Therefore, be very strong to keep and to do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses, turning aside from it neither to the right nor to the left, that you may not mix with these nations remaining among you or make mention of the names of their gods or swear by them or serve them or bow down to them. But you shall cling to Yahweh your God just as you have done to this day. The book of the law of Moses is a reference to Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the five books that precede the book of Joshua, and by the way, the only books of the Bible that hadn't been written up until that point. They obviously didn't have the rest of the scriptures. All they had was the book of the law of Moses. That was the totality of the word of God to them. And Joshua tells them, you need to keep this. You need to keep all of this is by implication, and you must not divert from it, reinterpret it, reimagine it, adjust it, make it more uh, understandable or acceptable to a contemporary audience. None of that. It is what it is. Do not divert from it from the right or to the right or to the left. It says what it says. Keep it. As it is, this is sufficient. The battle plan was always for the Israelites, do what God says. If he says, go to battle, you go to battle. If he says, march around the city once every day for seven days, on the seventh day, you march around it seven times and you blow trumpets, you do exactly that. The plan for our life is simple. Trust what God said because it is sufficient to get us where we need to be. That's a doctrine oftentimes referred to as sola scriptura, scripture alone. And scripture alone, meaning scripture alone, is sufficient to give us life and give us all that we need to obey and honor the Lord. What was Joshua's concern here? Well, it's one we find throughout the Bible, mixing with the nations around them. Now, that isn't necessarily about intercultural marriage, uh, which was forbidden for the Israelites, although Moses, remember, was married to Zipporah, who's a Midianite. Rahab was, of course, a Gentile that was saved at the beginning of Joshua, and she ends up in the lineage and genealogy of Jesus. It's not, it, it's not just because they are, you know, ex-culture, ex-race. That is not why God was forbidding these intercultural marriages. The issue is worshiping the false gods of the people around them. And there was this built-in assumption that the dynamic of intermarrying with people that God deemed as wicked, worthy of judgment, you know, pagan, was going to result in compromise and descent into idolatry. So the very nature of intermarrying was assuming that you're, you're, they're not people that had come around to worshiping the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, that you are going after them to do their ways because you think you know, the women over on that side of the wall are you know, more desirable than those who are following the Lord. So 
It was that, that necessary dynamic of falling into their idolatry. I say that because it's, I know some people will accuse the Bible of being you know, racist and so on because Israelites had those kinds of laws, but you don't see anything like that in the New Testament. In fact, you find quite the opposite. We've gone over it many times in Ephesians 2 and 3, how Jews and Gentiles, they constitute one people in the Lord through the blood of Christ. There's no, you know, uh, Jew or, or Greek or any different races, it's all one in Christ. So we know that for sure. Um, but here the issue is idolatry, not necessarily they have a different skin color, they have a different culture or a different language. Um, the word for cling there, that they need to cling to Yahweh your God, is the same as in Genesis 2.24, where God says that for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and cling to his wife. And the two will become one flesh. So we, we're talking about a kind of like clinging to the Lord that is more than just keeping a book of laws because you don't want to get in trouble. Clinging to God here is being equated to, you know, keeping the words of Moses. But you and I know there's maybe jobs you've had or, or people you knew where you just needed to like, do what they asked you. You just didn't want to cause any problem. You're just going to go buy the book. And, you know, you didn't, it was just to keep them out of your hair, right? That's not how Joshua is imagining the people to relate to God through his word. That here's a book of laws. Just don't, just don't make God upset, right? If you keep these rules, he'll stay out of your life. You won't be bothering him. You know, the boss won't get mad, that kind of relationship, or, you know, if, you're, if you ever had a relationship like this with your parents and just never wanted them in your stuff, you just kept the rules because it's, it's easier. This has happened a lot in Asian cultures. It's just, you, you gave them obedience or what looked like obedience, but it wasn't because you loved them. It wasn't because you thought what they were saying was a good idea. It wasn't that you agreed with them. It's just, you didn't want them, you know, like asking too many questions about what you're doing, who you're hanging out with. That's not what cling means here. Clinging is a kind of word of, of commitment, being glued to him because you need him. It's a statement of necessity and desire. I think of, of Peter when he was kind of called out by Jesus, when all the people that Jesus was ministering to left him. And he turns to his disciples and said, are you going to leave me too? And Peter says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. That was a clinging to Jesus because of his words. And in the same way, Joshua is calling the Israelites, cling to the word of Moses and the, the you know, first five books of the Bible because of who God is, because you love him, because you want to be near to him. It's not just obeying because, you know, God is uh, keeping track of all these things and like he's going to be real mad if you, you know, didn't uh, dot your I's and cross your T's and stuff. No, Joshua wants to emphasize this is a personal thing because you love God, because you want to be close to God. You keep these words. His words are an expression of who he is and his character. To reject them is to reject God. To follow them is to say, God, you are good, you're wise, you're holy, you're just. So keep them. Again, by way of application, uh, it's, you know, when you talk about like pagan nations and, and, and pagan cultures and intermarriage, and, and that can all seem very like distant to us, or we're going to, um, you know, make it anachronistic, meaning we're going to try and apply these words to 21st century America, and you're going to make weird analogies about who are the Amorites in our culture, who are the Perizzites and the Canaanites. And I don't think that's what Joshua is trying to say, nor how we should approach applying Scripture. Uh, John Calvin famously said that our hearts are idle factories, meaning that everyone is always producing things to worship, and idolize and follow constantly. And sometimes lots of people start gravitating towards a common idol in the culture, and it doesn't necessarily mean Baal or um, uh, uh, the, the Asherah or something. It, it just means there's sometimes things that get in the culture that everyone seems to crave and desire that's completely ungodly and unholy. And because... Human beings, even Christians, can be tempted to be accepted by society or be allured 
by the seeming offer of happiness that doing those things um, might provide, the acceptance that we might have if we just go along with what everyone else is, that's probably more akin to the kind of danger and concern that we should have as we look around to us, that there are um, ideologies and groups of people that we want to impress, and in order to impress them, that we might compromise what we know the Word of God says. The antidote to that is to trust that the Word of God is the final and absolute authority. You'll, you'll be kept from being tossed to and fro by what's popular in, in culture right now and what everyone seems to think makes them happy if you know what the Word of God says. Or as Paul puts it in 2 Timothy three sixteen and 17, <clears throat> Paul writes to his son Timothy in the faith, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So you could, you know, I I love that verse just because there's just the comprehensiveness of it. All of scripture is all inspired in every way to be able to equip every person to do every kind of good work. That's sola scriptura. Or if you like the Westminster Divines, 1646, the Westminster Assembly said this, the whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his own glory, man's salvation, faith and life, is either expressly set down in Scripture or by good and necessary consequence may be deduced from Scripture, unto which nothing at any time is to be added, whether by new revelations of the Spirit or traditions of men. In other words, Word of God is sufficient for us to live our life in a godly way. And so Joshua wants to remind them of that. Fourth review lesson. Fourth review lesson. The motivation for obedience outweighs the consequences of disobedience. In other words, just look at what happens when you disobey and think of why you should obey both by looking at the consequence for disobeying, but for all the good reasons why you should obey. The motivations for obedience, they outweigh the consequences of disobedience. Joshua 23, 9, For Yahweh has driven out before you great and strong nations. And as for you, no man has been able to stand before you to this day. One man of you puts to flight a thousand, since it is Yahweh your God who fights for you, just as he promised you. Be very careful, therefore, to love Yahweh your God. For if you turn back and cling to the remnant of these nations remaining among you and make marriages with them so that you associate with them and they with you, know for certain that Yahweh your God will no longer drive out these nations before you, but they shall be a snare and a trap for you, a whip on your sides and thorns in your eyes until you perish from off this good ground that Yahweh your God has given you. The motivations for obedience here is God is on your side when you obey. I I, I get into counseling situations a lot and usually there's, you know, two people kind of at a loggerhead. One thinks the other person's the whole problem. The other thinks, you know, the other person's the whole problem. And you, they're, they're, they're trying to win you to their side. That's what they're trying to do is they think that counseling is how can I get Pastor Uri on my side of this argument and to agree with me so that we can team up to get the other person to do the right thing or what I want them to do. And I always tell them this, I'm not on either of your sides. I'm on God's side. And if you, I want you to be on God's side too. So if you want to join me over here on God's side, that's what counseling is going to be. It's not that God is on your side or God is on, we talked about that when Joshua was confronted with the angel of the Lord, right? But it's not that like God is on your side or, or God is on your side. It's do you want to be on God's side? That's what I have to offer in counseling is do you want to be on God's side? That's the side I, I'm trying to be on. That's the side I think you should be on. That's a motivation for obedience is God will be on your side. Or you will be on God's side. And what happens when God is on your side? Well, in the context of a conquest, one man fights like a thousand. 
I mean, but it's not just that. This is obviously not a guarantee that, um, you know, you're, if you are a Christian UFC fighter, that you're going to win every fight. Or that if you are a Christian football team, you're going to win every fight. I mean, that's not anything like that. This is talking about spiritual things. Because again, their conquest was a spiritual matter. And in spiritual issues of life, God will be on your side. You'll be able to face it all because God is with you. Why would you not want God with you? So our motivation for obedience, it almost sounds like the way we often think of it is to win God to my side. You know, there's something I really want to happen. You know, I really want this in my life right now, this, you know, spouse or this job. So if I start obeying, God is going to look more kindly to when I pray (laughs) for that thing, right? So I'm trying to get God on my side by my obedience and my works. But Joshua is saying quite the the opposite. It's your faith is uh, out of the fact that you want to be on God's side of the issue. And that being on God's side, you're going to walk in obedience flowing from being on his side, not that you're trying to win him to your side with your obedience. The, the warning, uh, and that should be, you know, motivation enough, is I, 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 I want to be on God's side. I, I want to be able to face the issues and, and, and uh, the circumstances I'm facing. And, you know, I believe God is the one that who ordained them. So I want to be on God's side and have his perspective on this. Not that I'm trying to change God's mind so that my circumstances bend to what I want. That's not faithful obedience. But um, there's also a warning with that. If that's not enough motivation, there's also consequences for disobeying. It's not that God sits there and if you choose not to do it his way, he says, oh man, that's, you know, I really did hope that you were going to do it my way, but I guess you're going to choose the wrong way. So, you know, I guess that's tough for me. Well, well, no, God is God. That's why you have this statement, be very careful to love Yahweh your God. And what a, what a funny kind of warning, except that it's equating loving God with faithful obedience. Be very careful to faithfully obey God. See, if you put it like that, it makes sense versus be very careful to love God. It's like a weird kind of, uh, of threat, like uh, someone that's um, being held hostage. You know, you better love me or else. Well, it's not, it's not that kind of thing. It's if you choose not to be on God's side, live God's way, What's the alternative to not be on God's side and to not do it God's way? Well, how is that going to turn out? If God is the all-knowing, all-wise, loving creator of the universe, how is it going to go for you to not be on his side and to pursue a way contrary to his nature? So instead of love, what are you choosing? Hate. Instead of life, what are you choosing? Death. Instead of blessing, what are you choosing? Cursing. And that's what we're talking about here. If you turn back and you cling to these nations, know for certain that Yahweh or God will no longer drive out these nations, but they shall be a snare and a trap for you, a whip on your sides and thorns in your eyes. It's very picturesque language. I, I once had like a slightly scratched cornea. Like I went to the urgency, uh, the um, urgent care, you know, at Kaiser or whatever, and they had to put a dye to see if there's a scratch. It was so annoying. I thought, like, I wanted to, like, scratch my eyes out, you know, because it would just bug me. Like, the idea that there's something, you know, on my eye, um, it, was, it was very annoying. And <laughs> like, so I guess I'm a wuss about that sort of thing. But when I see here, like, you know, if you do this, there's, it's like a whip on your sides and thorns in your eyes. I mean, that is, that's not going to kill you necessarily, but it sounds pretty awful. <laughs> it sounds pretty horrific to have a thorn, you know, shoved into your eye. I mean, this might be in some ways like a, a little bit of a, you know, Jesus did experience a whip on his sides, right? And he did have a, 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 a crown of thorns pressed on, my, on, on his head. And I don't know, maybe it's not hard to imagine that his eye could have been poked by these, you know, thorny prickles. It just... It was meant to torture, it's meant to humiliate, it's meant to um, be uh, like diminishing to your soul, to discourage you. Um, God is saying there's a consequence to 
to not doing things his way. There has to be because it's not a neutral thing. To not obey God is not a decision to be neutral. It's a decision to be hostile and to be his enemy. Loving God is a command. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. On the other hand, it should be the most natural thing to do in the world. Because you, you know how you don't like having a whip on your side and a thorn shoved in your eye, right? It's a natural thing to avoid that. Why would you ever choose that? Like, why would an Israelite ever say, well, yeah, I mean, you know, that doesn't sound too bad given what I, you know, what I get, which is I get to marry a, a pagan person. But that pagan person is the trap, is the snare. You get no, there's, in other words, there's no benefit from doing this. All you get is suffering. Why would you ever do that? Why would you ever choose not to uh, or choose that kind of pain and suffering? It should be the most natural thing in the world to love God. Because, you know, children who have parents who care for them and love them and protect them and teach them, well, such children shouldn't, they have no reason not to love their parents. They're doing everything right. They don't have a reason not to love. They have every reason to give them affection, devotion, and loyalty Good parents, bringing a child into the world, it should be the most natural thing for that child to love the parents. But you and I know, I mean, someone can have really like awesome parents and a child could still turn out bitter, angry, upset, entitled, spoiled. It's because of sin. Sin is that horrific. Sin is that tempting, that deranged, that illogical, that selfish, that proud, that someone could have the best parents and still be resentful and selfish towards them. And even more so that we could, as children of God, born into a world that he created, owing everything to him, still be upset and angry at God for not giving us exactly what we want, ultimately, because we're not God ourselves, to be upset at God because we're not God. That, that just speaks to the heinousness of sin, the heinousness of our, our human frailty and condition, that everything could go your way this Christmas, and you could still find yourself upset and angry because the smallest thing, though, didn't go exactly the way you wanted. That which tempts you, will betray you in this life. God is not like that. But woe to you if you would turn away from God to all of these alluring things in the world that tempt you because they will ultimately betray you. I've experienced this so many times. There's so many times where God gave me what I wanted and it turned to ash in my mouth because I wanted it selfishly. I wanted it at the wrong time. I wanted it in my own way. There's so many things. I mean, you know, one to go on about it, but you know, I, I, when I was in the army, I had a lot of things I wanted to get out of the army experience. And I wanted like, I wanted it to be like this way. When I go in the army, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this, this is going to happen, and it's going to be like this. I got that. I got to join the army. There's nothing that, that, that precluded me from joining the army. And then it be, ended up being a totally different experience than I wanted. And I got bitter and upset and cranky at God and at other people because it wasn't exactly what I wanted out of it. God is... I mean, God has given me almost everything I've ever asked for. And most of it, it's like, God, why did you give it to me? This is miserable. This is just turning into dust in my hands. This didn't satisfy me the way I thought. You just think of children, right? On Christmas morning, they were wanting that Xbox or that toy for months. They play with it for a day. They forget about it. Or... It breaks, or it's not as interesting or as exciting as they thought it would be. I mean, that's, that's the way we are. God, if God cannot be your all in all, then what can? <laughs> if you can't be satisfied by God, there's nothing out there in this world that can satisfy. He's the source of every good thing. And you, you will find, I think, often, you probably have a story yourself, maybe share it. You know, shared when we're having dinner in a second, you know, what's that Christmas gift that you got that you thought you wanted so bad and it just ended up being a temptation, a trial, a snare, a trap, a whip, a thorn, 
And it really, in fact, because you didn't know what you really wanted. It hurts you. I'm sure you all have a story of that, something that just left a bitter taste in your mouth because you wanted it simply. There's motivation in remembering that God, it's better to be on God's side and there's a consequence for not. Verses 14 through 16 will do fast because really it's just reiterating the same truths. And now I'm about to go the way of all the earth, and you know in your hearts and souls, all of you, that not one word has failed of all the good things that Yahweh your God promised concerning you. All have come to pass for you. Not one of them has failed. But just as all the good things that Yahweh your God promised concerning you have been fulfilled for you, so Yahweh will bring upon you all the evil things until he has destroyed you from off this good land that Yahweh your God has given you. If you transgress the covenant of Yahweh your God, which he commanded you, and go and serve other gods and bow down to them, then the anger of Yahweh will be kindled against you and you shall perish quickly from off the good land that he has given to you. Again, Paul, or Paul, Joshua pretty much reiterates the same truths, but he essentially is going to remove any excuses, maybe sprinkle in a little bit of a guilt trip (laughs) on everyone, or maybe a nicer way to put that is that he's going to give a sense of urgency and personal accountability. I mean, he's talking to maybe millions of Israelites, right? But he wants each person to feel the weight of this call. And that's really maybe the main kind of a message in reiterating this is that there is a personal accountability that each one of us must have before God. He fully expects each person that is listening to him to know that they are going to stand before God and have to give an account. So he's got to give them the good news, the bad news. He's got to give them the hope. He's got to give them the the judgment. And there's a few ways he puts this. This I'm going to go through a little bit faster if that's okay. But you must be personally accountable for your faith. That means that you cannot bank on the faithfulness of others. They couldn't just depend on Joshua to be faithful for them. He says, now I am about to go. Why does he say that? It's, in other words, if you are banking on me to live forever in order for you to walk obedient to the Lord, guess what? I'm about to die. What are you going to do then? And of course, you can analogize that if you are banking on the faithfulness of your uncle, your aunt, your grandma, your grandpa, your parents, your pastor. At some point, all of us, we are going to go the way of the earth. You can't have a faith that is based on someone else. It has to be your own. Secondly, if you, must, you must be personally accountable for your faith, so you can't assume you'll have time later to be right with God. He reminds them, in other words, of their mortality. He's about to go the way of all the earth. In other words, who's going to die in this room at some point? All of us. You don't know when that's going to be. I joke about it a little bit on Koinonia because we have a potluck, you know, and there's sometimes I've had something bad at at Koinonia. So maybe this is the last night you have on on planet Earth. You You don't know. But all of us one day are going to die. And that's got to be such a humbling and sobering thought that ought to bother you. The time to be right with God is that moment. He's reminding them that they all must pass through this veil from life to death. And after that comes the judgment. So will they take seriously? Each one needs to take seriously. They, they will have to stand before God. And they can't say at that point, well, you know, I, I, and I did everything, you know, that, that Joshua told me to do, and, and that's, that's it, and, and Joshua is going to vouch for me. No, God is going to ask each one to give an account. So you can't assume, if you're taking personal accountability of your faith, you can't just assume you have time later to be right with God. You got to do it now. You don't know when you're going to die. Third, if you want to be personally be personally accountable for your faith, understand you can't claim ignorance. Notice what he says. He says, you know in your hearts and souls, all of you, that not one word has failed of all the good things that Yahweh your God has promised concerning you. All have come to pass for you. Not one of them has failed. He's 
making the claim that they, in their, their heart and soul, just means in your innermost being and core. You cannot deny that God has kept his word perfectly, that he has done everything. He's made his character and nature clear. And it's not just to the Israelites, because you might say, well, well, yeah, I mean, they, 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 they saw the miracles in the wilderness, and they saw miracles in the conquest. Like, yeah, they, they saw that, but I haven't seen that. You know, I, I, I don't know. Like, I can still say, well, I don't know if there's a God. Romans chapter 1. Now we're talking about the time of Paul. We're talking about uh, after the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Here's what Paul says in Romans chapter 1, verse 20. For his, that is God's, invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. In other words, Paul is saying, if you just have two eyes, if you just have a a brain that's got a couple brain cells that are rubbing together, you know there's a God. There, There has to be. You don't have an excuse to say, well, I didn't know. The creation is clear, but what we chose to do is, you know, it says that it's not really super popular now to make images of God and say, oh, this is God. You have like a, a ram or a goat, and that's, that's what they did back in uh, the, the pagan days of Joshua. They'd have uh, a goat or something, and, you know, here's God. We don't do that, but when it says here that we made images resembling mortal man, that's how we make idols now. And in general, a mocking sense, right? Like when people make fun of God, the God of the Bible, they often do so by imagining him as just as capricious, just as selfish, just as small and petty as us. When an atheist or someone of another religion tells me about God, I'm very interested in hearing that because it's often a mirror of themselves, either the worst of themselves or the best of themselves. But so often it resembles a person. Whereas I hope as a Christian, if we were to describe God, and we sort of talked about this in Ephesians 3, we almost feel like we're trying to know the unknowable. Remember from Ephesians? And I hope that when you talk about God, it's not as if he were just another man. But in any case, to be personally accountable for your faith, just know you, you can't claim ignorance. You can't say, I didn't know. Everyone knows that there is a God. Fourth, you can't accuse God of inconsistency. You know, if you're going to be personally accountable for your faith and hold other people personally accountable for their faith, we have to remove that excuse that God is inconsistent. Just as... Um, uh, but just as all the good things that Yahweh your God had promised concerning you have been fulfilled for you, so Yahweh will bring upon you all the evil things as well. I'm just shortening that up. Any, any, in, in other words, God has not changed the game plan, right? If God changes the game plan, moves the goalposts on you, says it's going to be this way, no, it's going to be this way, then you're right to not follow God. You're right to say, I can't follow you, God. You keep changing the rules. I mean, you're, you're, not, you're not playing fair. It's like children playing. <laughs> My kids do this all the time. They're playing a game. When they start to lose, what do they do? You change the rules of the game so that you're winning, <laughs> okay? And, and if God was inconsistent, you could accuse him of that. Well, God, you told me this is what holiness is. And then over here you tell, you know, it's this. Now some people do accuse God of that kind of inconsistency. You say, oh, the God of the Old Testament is a different God than, than you seem to see in the New Testament. No, no, you just need to understand your Bible better. So if, you, if that is something that's been told to you or uh, some, you know, someone has, has asked you about or maybe even accused you of, we'll talk about that later. But Joshua definitely is saying God has given you a consistent rule to follow and he's kept it consistent. So good things come. You know, you're faithful when there's, when there's 
sin, God is going to call it out. When you ask for forgiveness, God is going to offer forgiveness. Like God is being very consistent, even in treating you. If you think you're going to get away with doing evil because, oh, you're my special people, understand that I will keep you out of this good land. No wicked thing can inhabit this good land if you're and that's why all these, you know, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hittites are getting kicked out. If you start acting like them, I'm a very consistent God, you also will be driven out. God is going to act consistently, so you can't accuse him of, oh, you keep changing the rules of the game. No, you've witnessed it. You know why God is removing these people. God told you not to do it, so if you don't do it, guess what's going to happen to you? God is not going to allow evil to, to happen without some sort of penalty or judgment. And it doesn't mean that they were, had to be perfect. Remember, if they sinned, there was a provision for a sin offering. If they were sinned, then they needed to confess it to the Lord and it'd be right. It's not that God was saying, you have to be perfect in order to enter this land. It's, you have to follow the law. And the law says, if you break the law, there's forgiveness. You just come to me with a Repentant heart, come with me with the blood of, of lambs and goats to show that you know that it should be your life that is being poured out. And I'm graciously allowing the, the blood of a lamb or a goat to replace it. It's not that they were supposed to be perfect. It was supposed to be that they understood, in fact, that they weren't. But if they seek God, they submit themselves to God, God will leave them in the land. So the kind of wicked we're talking about here is not just, oh, they goofed up. They sinned and messed up like we all do. It's that they did it unrepentant, with no eye to make it right with God, with, with no care to, to please him, completely rejecting that they could be forgiven through the blood of a sacrifice. <clears throat> now, again, in terms of an application uh, for us, I mean, this promised land is, is used as a picture of heaven in the Bible, of an eternal rest, an eternal dwelling place for the people of God. And of course, in that heaven, in that eternity, there can be no evil. Just by definition, it wouldn't be heaven if there was evil or wickedness in it. No one deserves then to be in heaven because we've all sinned. We all short, fall short of the glory of God. The covenant that God made to the Israelites, in a way, if you keep the commands, you'll be in the land. If you disobey, you'll be kicked out. That's a promise that was to demonstrate despite all of their efforts, despite all of the, the graces God had given in the priesthood and the sacrificial system and the temple, they couldn't be right with him. God would one day have to intervene himself as priest, as sacrifice, as king, as servant. And we know that this is the message of Christmas, that Jesus was born in order to fulfill this requirement of the law that we could not, to be perfect. Then instead of, um, instead of being hailed as the king of kings and lord of lords, when he came to this earth as a baby, he instead, after living that perfect life, voluntarily, willingly, lovingly, shed his own blood in a, as a substitute for us, as a substitute for sinners, as the perfect sacrifice, that because of what Jesus has done, we can have that eternal rest because he takes our sinful nature, he takes all the guilt of our sin, and he replaces it with his own nature and with his forgiveness. And we can have that um, by grace today. We don't know when we're going to die. We can't bank on the faithfulness of others. We can't claim ignorance or uh, know when we're going to go to see him. So now, now is the time to seek a gracious God who's always been gracious. And on the basis of his son, Jesus, and faith in him, to turn away from our sin and to embrace the Savior, to be allowed into heaven, not because of how good we are, but because of how good God is and, and uh, be right with him. And Joshua, he had glimpses of that. He had hints of that at the time when he was alive, but here, you know, 1,000, 2,000, 3,000 years later, we can look back and say, Jesus Christ has fulfilled these requirements for us. And 
And so if you're not a Christian tonight, would love for you to um, ask more questions if you have them. If you are a Christian tonight, I hope there's some encouragements and reminders in these review lessons. Um, we're almost here at the end of Joshua. I'll, I'll let you guys know next time we're, we're together where we might be going from here. But let me close with the word of prayer, and then we can have our time of uh, fellowship in Koinonia. Heavenly Father, thank you again for your faithfulness towards us. If it were up to us, uh, we, we couldn't do it. <laughs> that's, that's a very clear message. All we can have is faith and trust in you. So thank you, Lord, for counting faith as righteousness and not our good works, which we don't have, um, Lord, to give to you. But thank you that if we're on your side, if you are in our corner because we're in your corner, we can do wonderful, marvelous, glorious things for you. And so thank you for that privilege and that honor. Thank you for the chance to eat and, and drink to the glory of God and fellowship around the table at this uh, precious season of the year. Um, <clears throat> May Christ reign in our hearts, Lord, as at this time and uh, banish away darkness and all the discouragements that we might be facing. Thank you, Lord, for being so good to us. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.